Hey, what's up, Bridgetown family? Tyler here letting you know that early bird registration for this year's Holy Spirit Conference is officially live right now on our website. It is $85, only $85 to register for this year, and you can find that at bridgetown.church slash holyspirit. We're going to be joined by Simon Ponsonby, a brilliant author and scholar from Oxford, by Jordan Seng, a beautiful practitioner who leads an incredible community called Blue Water Mission right in the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii, and then the wonderful songwriters and worship leaders Rich and Lydia Dikas from KXC Church in London. So you don't want to miss this. We've moved this year to the Portland Ballroom right in the heart of our city in an effort to make more space as we've sold out quite quickly in years past. So go ahead and mark your calendars January 26 and 27 in Portland. Uh, all are welcome and invited, and you're going to want to register very soon to make sure you lock in a spot and the earliest rate possible. Bridgetown.church slash Holy Spirit. See you in January. Matthew 18, 15 through 22. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where, where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Three true stories. First, um, this is my third fall in the city of Portland, and I'm coming in 0 for 2 on leaf day so far. So it's really determined not to mess it up this year. So uh, last Saturday, I was doing just some preliminary work, getting my piles ready so that when the day came, I was ready to deliver. And as I was raking, this moment flashed to my mind from the previous month. It happened in a meeting. I said something to Peter, and I didn't mean anything by it at all. I was just collaborating, working together to try to solve a problem. But when it flashed back to my mind, I saw that the way I said it might have unintentionally seemed combative or disrespectful. And I just began to pray about this as I was raking, and eventually I set the rake down and I called Peter. I'm sorry, man, I should not have said that that way. Oh, it's completely forgiven. I didn't think a thing of it. I love you, Tyler. Second story. I want a divorce. Those were the first words out of his mouth when we sat down together, and then this heavy kind of silence just hung in that space between both of us. 
Timothy had discovered infidelity in their marriage by Rose's own confession several years prior to this, and he'd been committed to working through it, to loving her as Christ. He'd been fighting and, and, and carrying on, but he still never felt love, no matter how much he tried to communicate what he felt he needed and wanted. And things seemed to be fine when they were in the counselor's office, but then it was just more of the same back home. And so Timothy texted me, his pastor, for an emergency meeting on a Tuesday evening. And here's where he started when we sat down at the cafe table together. I want a divorce. And we talked for a long time after that that night. And we talked a lot of other nights after that one. And that was nearly a decade ago now, and the two of them are faithfully and happily married. They are not perfectly married, but they are faithfully and happily married and mothering and fathering three children. Ramon is the only son to a mentally ill, formerly addicted single mother. They live together in a one-bedroom apartment on a particularly dangerous block in the projects with two dogs that almost never get to go outside. The stench of the pee mat for those dogs fills every room in that little place. And Ramon lives off sandwiches from the deli that he buys on food stamps right across the street. I want to get as far away from her as I can and never come back. That's what he said to me when I was driving him upstate to drop him off at college where I would help him move into a dorm room, which was the nicest outfit he had ever called home to that point in his life. Four years later, I helped him clean out that same dorm room, and I was driving him back home, back to the very home that he left. His great ambition now was to work hard enough, long enough in law enforcement, that was his field of choice, that he might be able to get her a cleaner and safer place to live. And he lives with his mother to this day, saving up toward that end, Through a lot of time and a lot of prayer, bitterness turned into compassion and empathy overcame judgment. Three stories, all of which carry very different emotional weights and happen over very different timelines, but all of which fit under the banner of what Scripture calls reconciliation. So we are in the home stretch of a crucial teaching series on the radical call of church to live in community in a transient culture of transactional relationships. And last week we kicked off part three of the series, Practices for Deep Roots, with the practice of wonder. And up for today is the practice of reconciliation. And reconciliation is the heart of Jesus' mission, the heart of our mission, and the experience of Jesus' presence. Let's begin, shall we? So first, reconciliation is the heart of Jesus' mission. Why on earth would God disrobe himself of glory, disguise in human flesh, live among us, and then ultimately submit himself to his own creation in both life and death? Well, the one word answer to that most prominent of all biblical questions is reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Now, the English reconciled is the Greek kataleje, which literally means friendship restored. The claim of the Bible is that you were created in friendship with God. And then with sin came dysfunction, pain, death, and most importantly for us today, separation. A cosmic distance was driven between you and the relationship you were created to explore and enjoy forever. And so God humbled himself to come and live among us and died and rose on our behalf to close that gap, to replace separation with intimacy, to restore that friendship, to reconcile. 
Reconciliation is also the heart of our mission. If we just keep on reading in the very same passage, it says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. In other words, the very mission for which Jesus came, he has now entrusted to us, his church. And so if you're wondering why we do all of this, like why we show up in this place on Sundays and why we gather midweek to work this stuff out and live this stuff out in a city that is filled with so many other compelling options for how to use your time and how to devote your life, the one word answer to that most prominent of all church questions is reconciliation. It's because we're people of restored friendship with God, and so we come together to practice the life of friendship with God that we were created for in the first place, reconciliation. Matthew 18, our teaching text, if you've hopefully still got your Bible open to it, peeled there on your lap, it's one of only two places in the whole of the Gospels where Jesus uses the word ecclesia, which translates church. Jesus says in summary, because you have been reconciled to God, you also are reconciled with one another. The reason that Jesus resisted giving in to the objective truth questions of the Pharisees or the uh, show us another sign so that we know your legit requests from the crowds is because Jesus never intended to leave behind a body of work that would prove his lordship. Instead, Jesus was insistent on leaving behind a body of believers who shared life together would be so otherworldly and would it match the place that they were in that the only possible explanation would be that there must be something to this Jesus guy. In the words of 2 Corinthians, it's as though God were making his appeal to the watching world through the way that we love one another. You see, the sacrificial way that we go on restoring friendship to one another in the inevitable conflicts that threaten to divide when we get together in a community like this one is meant to be living evidence to the world of a restored friendship with God. As Jesus went on to say very clearly on the final night of his life, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So the distinct nature of the way that we go on restoring friendship with each other is meant to be the smoking gun evidence of our restored friendship with God. The appeal that God wants to make through the world happens when you and I push through awkwardness and discomfort to overcome the inevitable hurt, disappointment, and anger that will creep into the relational space between us. Summarizing Jesus' teaching when he directly talks about the church on the pages of the gospel, I would probably go with incredible potential, forgiveness required. Reconciliation finally is the experience of Jesus' presence. Hidden right in the middle of our teaching text is the most frequently taken out of context verse in the whole of the Bible. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. When do you hear this referenced? Prayer meetings, right? Poorly attended, typically underwhelming prayer meetings, right? It's always something like, God, I know there's only a couple of us who are able to make it out today. But you do say, 
That wherever two or three gather, right? And that's not wrong. Of course, God is present there with his praying people. But when Jesus said this, he wasn't promising to be present at the poorly attended underwhelming prayer meeting. He was promising to be present in the awkward space between I'm sorry and I forgive you. The, this promise is the final word in a passage that begins, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out the fault just between the two of you. So where is there an emotional wound in your life? Like who has hurt you, whether they know it or not? And who have you hurt and then brushed it aside hoping time will heal it? Who said something that offended you and you just quietly internalized it? Who broke your trust? Who disappointed you? Who mistreated you intentionally or not? Who have you judged in the quiet monologue of your own thoughts? Whose name has been on your lips in a moment of gossip when you uh, got a cheap laugh out of a group of friends at the expense of someone else? Or who have you made assumptions about without deeply knowing them? Who have you written off or given up on? Whatever and whoever comes to mind when I ask questions like those, according to Jesus, is the best opportunity you've got anywhere in your life for a direct firsthand encounter with the living presence of God. The place that Jesus has promised to make his presence known to you and I is in the fumbling, stumbling, awkward attempt to reconcile where there's been a breach in relationship in his new family. That space between you and I that hurt occupies, that's the holy of holies. It's empty space that God has already promised to flood with his presence, if only we would flood it with ours. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. And that's the key phrase, in my name, which is the same as saying, in my authority or under my lordship. When you are willing to let go of your own authority, to set aside your presumptions and your sense of power and any barriers of social hierarchy and your insistence on being right or, or defending your rights and then humble yourself before someone else, admitting that you were offender or you were offended, you have supernaturally stepped underneath the lordship of Jesus. You are in his presence. To reconcile with someone else is to allow heaven to touch earth and the soil between the two of you just for a moment. So reconciliation isn't only for the world, that we would become living evidence of Jesus' truth. It is that, but it's more than that. And reconciliation isn't only for the other, that you and I would become a living picture of the unquenchable grace of God to each other. It is that, but it's also more than that. And reconciliation is, is, is also, it's for you. It's the promised place of face-to-face -face encounter with the living God. That place that God promises you can find him, it's not at the Holy Spirit conference or, or in the best sermon you've ever heard from your favorite preacher or in a prophetic word from that one guy. According to Jesus, the place that you can predictably, consistently, always find him is in the awkward, tense, courageous space between I'm sorry and I forgive you. So if it's encounter with God that you want, I'd suggest go looking in the very place that you're most tempted to avoid. And then in the same vein, Jesus also taught that there's this tie between our ability to receive God's forgiveness for us and our forgiveness given freely to one another. In Matthew chapter 6, he said, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, 
your Father will not forgive your sins. And on one hand, that's helpful because it's really clear, but on another hand, it's tough because it's pretty scary, right? I mean, what does Jesus mean by this? Is he saying that God will withhold his grace from me if I can't forgive my sister for that grudge I'm still holding against her from the way the dynamic between us when we grew up together, or that God's withholding his grace if I can't stop kind of playing out conversations that I'm not having out loud with that one guy ever since that one strange moment that we shared. No, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think what Jesus is saying actually has, is a lot more invitational than it is confrontational. I think it's a whole lot more loving than it is demanding. And so I want to try to explain what Jesus is saying both biblically and then psychologically so we can get a good look at it. So first, biblically, Jesus in Matthew 18 lays out four clear steps to follow when it comes to reconciliation. There are so many things that we wish Jesus had been clearer on, right? I mean, if Jesus would have just said it step by step instead of telling me another story about a Fig Newton farmer, then maybe I'd actually do it because I'd get it. But Matthew 18 is proof that it's not that simple. Because this passage does read pretty straightforward. Here are four steps to reconciliation and conflict when that inevitably creeps into the relational space of the new family that I'm creating. Now, if you've ever read the Gospels, you'll know this doesn't sound like Jesus. He's uncharacteristically clear and direct here. He's nearing the end of his life. He's cutting the small talk. He's getting to the heart of his mission. And so he looks his disciples in the eye and he remembers that these guys haven't done great with parable and metaphor up to this point. And so he just comes right out and says it. All right, look, if you're gonna share my love within community, there's gonna be some bumps in the road. And when you hit those bumps, here's what you should do. One, try personal confession or confrontation. If that doesn't work, then get a couple of wise witnesses involved. If that's still not working, then reach out to the church leadership. And then if all else fails, relate to them as you would an unbeliever. And more specifically on that last one, he says, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. Which sounds harsh, but zoom out a little bit and see this within its context. Immediately before this passage, Jesus has just finished teaching a parable about a wandering sheep. It was in our bread reading from this past week, if you're following along with our scripture reading plan. One out of the 100 goes wandering, and the, scripture, or the, sorry, the shepherd is so concerned with that wandering sheep that he leaves the 99 in safety to go in pursuit of the one lost. That's Jesus' teaching on how you and I should relate to unbelievers. So Jesus isn't saying, look, if you do the first three steps, then who cares? Forget them. You've done what you can. What he's saying is, you can't pretend that you have received my reconciliation if you aren't willing to extend it to another. So if all else fails, treat a broken friendship within the church with the compassion and prayerful urgency that you would treat a shepherd in pursuit of the one lost sheep. Jesus is not threatening to withhold his forgiveness from us if we are not equally forgiving to one another. He's saying the forgiving nature of your heart toward one another is the living evidence that you have fully received his forgiveness for you. And that the conscious refusal to extend that kind of forgiveness, which is costly, forgiveness always comes at a cost. It came at a cost for Jesus and it comes at a cost for us, is equally evidence that you are withholding some part of yourself from the freeing truth of God's inexhaustible grace toward you. In the words of scholar David Fitch, 
Reconciliation is so central to the good news of what God has done in Christ that to see no reconciliation in our churches suggests that there is no gospel in them. So there we have a biblical lens. Now let's take a look at the exact same sentiment psychologically. So this biblical theme of God's forgiveness and ours being inseparably bound together, it can be named psychologically under the banner of attachment theory. Attachment relationships between children and caregivers form our own sense of self and identity. Uh, We remember their sense of care for us, not in our minds, but somewhere deeper than our minds, like in our emotions and our bodies. And psychologists refer to that as the implicit memory or one's relational knowledge. You see, our brains, they're always forming shortcuts, and that's really helpful. It's why you can parallel park your car while also having a conversation with someone in the passenger seat. Because if your brain didn't form a shortcut, you would be concentrating on every move of that turn the way you did when you were 15, trying to get your driver's permit, right? But your brain has formed shortcuts, and similarly, your brain creates relational shortcuts, either for healing or for harm. Over time, experiences between infant and guardian, they begin to get chunked together into shortcuts the brain has made uh, for patterns of our felt experience. Last Sunday, we talked about the fact that uh, instances of pain, hurt, or abandonment in infancy can continue to inform you in adulthood in the way you relate to other people, even if you can't recall and tell a story of what happened to you in childhood. You see, this has experience has gotten put into you. It has gotten somewhere deeper than just your brain, but it is informing the way that you view and interact with everyone else. That's attachment. The patterns that we experienced as children from our caregivers for our hurt or, or our help have made shortcuts to the way that we relate to everyone else, to the way that I view myself, to the way that I relate to you, even to the way that I view and relate to God. And we've all got unique attachment patterns because we've all had unique relational experiences. But over time in this field, psychologists have been able to uh, create four distinct categories of attachment patterns. And without going through a full explanation, for our purposes, I simply want to point out that healthy human relationship is defined as secure attachment. Dr. Todd Hall, a clinical psychologist and follower of Jesus, writes, to be securely attached means you are spoken for by your attachment figures. Secure attachment means someone in this world has signed up to look out for you, to always be for you. I've got pretty friendly kids. Um, My youngest, Amos, who's about 20 months now, he'll often, just in public places, go up to complete strangers and just ask them to hold him, right? Right? He's generally like a really friendly guy. But if he bumps his head, not just any adult will do. He will bypass strangers, close friends of ours, his grandparents to just look for myself or Kirsten. Why is that? I hope it's because he's forming a secure attachment bond with the two of us. That he feels spoken for, that there's someone in this world who signed up to look out for him. And so when pain enters his life, he goes looking for that face. But here's where all this gets really, really interesting. A.W. Tozer, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, uh, says that we all relate to God in two ways, explicitly and implicitly. Explicit knowledge is everything that we cognitively believe about God. It's the way that you would describe your faith and the scripture that you'd memorize, the doctrine that you might recite, or the songs that you sing. 
Explicit knowledge is what we know about God. And so it is linear and predictable, and it's also easily changeable, right? A really compelling sermon or a new book that you read, and a nugget sticks out from Scripture, and you're continuing to shape and form your explicit knowledge of God. Uh, all this can easily reshape or rightly shape our, our understanding of who God is. Implicit knowledge, though, is everything that we relationally believe about God. And it is rooted not in the beliefs that we could recite or name, but in our attachment styles. Meaning those with a mother or father wound like abandonment tend to always relate to God in fear that God might abandon them. Or those with overbearing parents tend to relate to God like an overbearing parent, like he's ready to slap them on the wrist. Or those with performance-driven parents tend to struggle to relate to God apart from their spiritual performance. So as a thought experiment, think about your family of origin. Like the environment that your attachment style got formed within. And now with that environment in mind, just try to complete these two statements. The most important thing in life is, and I'm only safe when, Whatever your responses might be to those two statements, there you have the great descriptors of the spiritual battle that you will fight longest and hardest to overcome. There you have the plainly stated lies that the accuser was able to plant in you before you even had a chance to defend yourself. See, what I'm trying to show you, family, is that implicit knowledge of God plays not by the rules of theology, but by the rules of psychology. It is dictated not by um, our chosen beliefs, but by our unchosen inherited attachment patterns. Study after study after study shows a direct link between an individual's attachment style and the way that they view and relate to God. But check this part out. John Bowlby, who's the founder of attachment style, uh, or of attachment theory psychologically as a whole, he has observed that people who root their lives in thick communities, like people who root themselves deeply in a school or a college or a working group or a church, can have their attachment styles from infancy profoundly rewritten in adulthood within that community. Community among all relational contexts has the unique power to redeem or wound your image of God, to heal you or to hurt you in the very deepest ways. Explicit knowledge, how you explain what you believe about God, that can change in a linear, predictable way. Implicit knowledge, what I really believe about God down in my gut, that does not change in a linear, predictable way. It changes in a relational way meaning the spiritual, the community that we are a part of shapes the way that we relate to God deepest. That we, in some very real way, have a uh, responsibility and opportunity to affect one another's knowledge and relationship with God. Our tendency, then, would be to find the perfect community, right? <laughs> I mean, look, if the stakes are this high, I need to find a community that's never going to hurt me, harm me, or wrong me. But here's the real kicker of all this research. Secure attachment, psychologically speaking, is cultivated more profoundly by experiencing a breach in relationship that gets repaired than by never experiencing a breach in the relationship at all. 
Parents, hear me on this and be deeply comforted. You cultivate secure attachment with your child more, psychologically speaking, by messing up, going to them and saying, I'm really sorry, I messed up, and repairing the breach, than you do by never messing up. (gasps) Incredible, right? The psychiatrist Kirk Thompson says, secure attachment is not about the absence of ruptures, but the faithful repair of ruptures, even when repair seems beyond the reach of our imaginations. Like a broken bone that heals back stronger than it was before it was broken, when it comes to attachment, I'm sorry is greater than never needing to apologize, and reconciliation is stronger than perfection. Todd Hall summarizes all this research with the conclusion that spiritual maturity stalls and disillusionment balloons within us when our beliefs about God and our experience of God do not match. Right, when what I believe the Bible teaches and my experience of the God of the Bible relationally, it's not matching, I then grow disillusioned. And that often comes because of some painful experience with God or God's people that plunges into my life. And that disillusionment can then be repaired through reconciliation, making my image of God and the way that I relate to him even stronger than it was before the rupture, or it can be brushed aside, avoiding awkwardness and the difficulty of reconciliation, allowing that disillusionment to grow and grow until it becomes chronic, always grinding against what I believe until I walk away from God's people or God or both altogether. Spiritual maturity, though, grows when our beliefs about God and our experience of God do match. When what I believe in my head and what I believe in my gut, what I believe in my brain and what I believe in my bones, what I believe ideally and what I believe relationally are in sync, I grow, I mature. So when it comes to the practice of reconciliation, the stakes are this high, family. Our experience of restored friendship with God is intimately connected to our experience of restoring friendship with one another in the midst of conflict. Let me show it to you as a picture. Jacob and Esau, right, twin brothers, sibling rivalry. And the most famous moment in Jacob's life has got to be that whole homemade stew, wool on the arms, trick the dad into blessing me fiasco. Jacob, technically the younger brother, steals his father's blessing by trickery, by deception. And in this one act, Jacob is essentially telling his dad, I want you to bless me. But I know that the only way I can get that blessing is by winning, by deceit, not as my true and authentic self. It's very revealing of a broken attachment pattern, isn't it? The second most well-known moment in Jacob's life is probably his midnight wrestle with God. Jacob became a very successful adult, but always did so by deceit, by trickery, by manipulation. And so he grew super successful in his life, but his entire life was still motivated by fear rather than love. And then on the way back home to finally face up to Esau, his brother, the one that he deceived, God meets him in the middle of the night in the form of a divine man and literally wrestles with him all night. And what Jacob says to that man should ring familiar to the deepest part of his story. I won't let you go until you bless me. There it is again, right? 
Jacob wanted his father's blessing, but he thought he could only get that by winning, by deceit, not as his true authentic self. Jacob also wants his heavenly father's blessing, but he thinks he can only get that by winning, by deceit, not as his true and authentic self. So what does he do? He applies a broken attachment pattern from his earthly father to his heavenly father. He applies his dad issues to God. There's a third moment, though, not nearly as famous as those two, which I would argue is the most important moment in Jacob's life. It is a moment of reconciliation. You see, the next day, Jacob's walking with a permanent limp from this wrestle with God. He's hobbling back toward home where he will meet Esau. He's working Esau the way that he works everyone else. He is sending him gift after gift, a herd of goats, then sheep, then camels, then donkeys, buttering him up, pacifying him, manipulating him if he can. Why? Because he wants Esau's blessing. But he knows how he gets blessed. And it's not as his true authentic self. It's by winning someone over. It's by trickery. It's by deceit. So he's playing that same tune that has defined his entire life. Jacob, the younger brother, is hobbling home, limping behind herd after herd. He is sent to manipulate his brother into blessing him, but his brother Esau is running out to meet him. Genesis 33, Jacob went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother, but Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. This is a real-life meeting that Jesus will mirror in a fictional story later known as the parable of the prodigal son. When a younger brother makes an absolute mess, rehearses a speech meant to get the father's blessing, but the father throws the speech out altogether, wraps his arms around him, and loves him as his true, authentic self, restoring what had been taken away. And listen to what Jacob says to his brother in that moment of reconciliation. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Now that I know you've received me favorably. You see what's just happened? Jacob's attachment patterns, those lies the deceiver sowed into him deepest before he even had a chance to defend himself, that fear that has lived in his gut and defined his view and relationship with God, those broken patterns that were still at play the night before when he was looking at God face to face, wrestling with him through the night, they are upended not by a solo encounter with God when he's alone in the wilderness, but in community in reconciliation, when he is forgiven by the brother that he wronged. Mike Mason says, the previous night Jacob had met God physically, seen him face to face and touched him, but where he really met God and where he finally received the fullness of blessing for which he so ached was in the arms of his brother. Wrestling with God, Jacob was wounded, but in meeting Esau, he was healed. What he really believes about God is reshaped not by wrestling with God individually, but by reconciliation in community. That's how high the stakes are. So let me be really honest with you. If you stay long enough in this church, or in your current friend group, or at your workplace, or the PTA committee, or a book club, or a pickleball league, or the Saturday morning LARPing meetup group, any community at all, stay long enough to put down roots and you will experience conflict, pain, disappointment, and hurt. People are disappointing. They are difficult and particular and dysfunctional and at times entirely unreasonable. And so are you. And people are amazing. People have the power to love you and to form you and to encourage you and to enliven you like nothing else in this world. 
Relationships are essential for our spiritual formation and for the fullness of life. And that leaves you and I with two options. We can stay, put down roots in a single church community long enough and deep enough to be disappointed, hurt, and disillusioned. Long enough and deep enough to become the face of someone else's disappointment, hurt, and disillusionment. Deep enough to say, I'm sorry and I forgive you more times than we can count. And deep enough to be healed at the deepest level. The level of your attachment, your relational patterns, the level of what you really believe. Or we can go on to face that defining moment in the very next community. Now look, are there good reasons to leave? Absolutely there are. And are there dysfunctional spiritual communities where staying is going to be more harmful to you than going? Of course there are. I'm simply noting that when it comes to the church, Joseph Hellerman hits the nail on the head. Spiritual formation occurs in the context of community. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding, and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. People who leave do not grow. Or if I lost you in that really long quote, here's a summary from Bob Goff. Love difficult people, you are one of them. <laughs> Last Saturday I was raking leaves. And I called Peter. Hey man, when I said this, my tone was sharp. I'm really sorry. I love you. Timothy telling his pastor, I want a divorce. And then in their unique situation, discovering the capacity to forgive and try again and to love and to let himself be loved. And Ramon giving the best of himself in compassion and empathy to the person who has hurt him most and loved him most, his mom. All of us in unique ways and on unique timelines tasting the fruit of this thing called reconciliation. All of us more redeemed by reconciliation than we ever would have been by perfection. And all of that brings us to the practice of reconciliation. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. See, we've got to pull this off the page and set it down in real life right here in this community because most of us never even get this far. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out the fault just between the two of you. We don't get this far. I mean, we usually just let time pass and assume that both sides will probably get over it or silo off into separate social groups, or go looking for another church to start over, or stick around in the same church, but just avoid that person like the plague. So let me ask you again. Where is there an emotional wound in your life? Who in this community has hurt you, whether they know it or not? Who in this community have you hurt, and then brushed it aside, hoping time will heal that wound? Who said something that offended you quietly and, and you just quietly internalized it? Who disappointed you? Who mistreated you? Who broke your trust? Who have you judged in the quiet monologue of your own thoughts, chasing a cheap laugh at a moment of gossip rather than dignifying? Who have you made assumptions about without really knowing them? Who have you written off or given up on? The face or situation that comes to your mind when I say this, 
right there lies your greatest opportunity for face-to-face encounter with the living God. But of course, this will not just happen. Reconciliation isn't an idea or an aspiration. It's something we do. Reconciliation is a practice. And reconciliation gets practiced fast and slow and inner and outer. And so we will end with a very practical look at each of those. So first, fast and slow. Two lies that we're prone to believe that inhibit the fruit of reconciliation go like this. One, this offense is too small for me to elevate to the need of forgiveness. Or two, this offense is too great and is beyond the reach of true forgiveness. Reconciliation over smaller offenses is absolutely significant, and it tends to operate on the fast track. First John 2, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. Now, hate feels a bit strong, doesn't it? I mean, I bristle against people from time to time, but hate, I don't hate anyone. But then the letter of James counsels that the tongue is a restless evil, meaning your tongue, your speech, and your thoughts reveal what's in your heart. They're the barometer of your love. And if you could only hear some of the conversations I have had with other people in the unchecked monologue of my foggy early morning brain or or some of the emails I've drafted in my imagination but never sent some of the assumptions that I've made about him or her without really knowing them just based on a minor incident even some of the things I've said out loud to a family member when all my filters are down and turned off my tongue it shows me what's really in my heart And so might there be some small seed that you are letting grow into a root of bitterness when that same seed has the potential to grow the fruit of reconciliation? If only you'd say, that hurt, and I love you, or I'm sorry, I need your forgiveness. Other reconciliation will take a whole lot more than just a single step and is of the slower variety. And it's really important that we acknowledge that because forgiveness is costly, but counterfeit forgiveness is just as costly, right? Counterfeit money weakens the economy of a nation, and so counterfeit forgiveness, it weakens the real thing within any community. Some of us want to just wash each other's feet, say it's okay, and get on with it without doing the work of actually restoring the love and trust that was taken in the incident. And that's counterfeit reconciliation. It's fake, and it's really easy to pick out when you hold it up against the authentic. And that means sometimes we're going to need to settle in for the long, slow, difficult, but committed work of reconciliation. Pete Portal writes, the ongoing plot of reconciliation is often excruciating because it's the work of the cross. If reconciliation isn't painful, I'd venture to say it isn't really reconciliation work. Corrie ten Boom lived in Amsterdam during World War II and her family was caught sheltering Jews. And then she and her sister Betsy, they were sent off to Ravensbrück, one of the worst of concentration camps and only Corrie survived. And after the war, she became an advocate, traveling around, telling her story, speaking specifically about the topics of forgiveness and reconciliation. And she tells the story of this one lecture in Munich in 1947, when after she had finished, she was standing at the front and she was approached by the Nazi prison guard who was in charge of the women's showers there at Ravensbrück. She recognized him immediately, and so when he reached out his hand to shake her, she just froze. 
She'd been waxing poetically about forgiveness, but here's an emotional block. There was some impulse in her body that couldn't just reach out her hand to greet this man. A battle between forgiveness and justice started raging in her gut, and she prayed silently, Jesus, I cannot forgive this man. Give me your forgiveness. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. That moment of reconciliation for both parties, it was the fruit of prayer. Yes, there was a prayer prayed in the very moment for Corey, but the journey to that moment began in prayer long before that particular moment. You see, there's deeper hurts that require a slower and deeper journey for reconciliation to be authentic. And it typically begins in prayer with God before it's actualized in conversation with another human being. Prayerfully returning to the past event and then finding or being found by Jesus there within that event journeying with Jesus toward my own internal healing, and then after all of that work, seeking out recon- or, or relational healing with the offender or the offended. That's why we have an inner healing ministry in this church, which you can find more out about on our website or even sign up for an appointment if you think that that's something that would be helpful to you. The healing of past relationships doesn't always mean going to someone in person, and it doesn't necessarily mean becoming close compadres with our abusers or betrayers, but at the Spirit's invitation and alongside wise counsel, we can know what healthy forgiveness looks like in each place of relational pain in our lives. We do not forgive someone else because they deserve it. We forgive someone because we want to be free, and we want to be healed, and we want to be whole. And now we're on to those inner and outer dynamics of reconciliation. You see, sometimes inner reconciliation requires a trained professional or a prayer companion or both. But other times, this is something we begin, can begin to pursue in our own individual prayer lives. I mean, Jesus himself did say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us how to pray. He just tells us to pray. Because we can be avoidant about conflicts in our lives even in our conversation with God. David's prayers in the Psalms I find to be helpful examples for the pursuit of reconciliation in prayer, but if you go read them on your own, you will discover that they are all over the map. I take Psalm 140 just for one example. May burning coals fall on them. May they be thrown into the fire, into miry pits, never to rise. Look, David's not always praying holy longings, but he's not stuffing it either. He's processing with God. Dialogue with God opens up the possibility of growth. Shutting God out suffocates growth. Jesus called the Holy Spirit our counselor, but it is very difficult for you to help, or a counselor to help you with an aspect of your life that you keep closed off to them. Counselors heal gently, and they do so through leading questions that reveal what is really within us to ourselves, that it might be healed. But if you don't let them in, a counselor is rarely going to kick the door down. So do not wait until you've got it perfect. Pray it as soon as you've got it honest. Prayer can include brutally honest venting, but the aim of prayer is to truly see. Right? If all you want to do is vent, you'll go to that friend who always agrees with you no matter what. 
but if you want to heal, if you want to grow, if you want to be free, if you want to see, you'll go to a counselor. Prayer is a conversation with God that doesn't turn a blind eye to the faults and offenses of others, but it's also a conversation with God that aims to see that other through the eyes of God, to see the true self that is fearfully and wonderfully made that he knit together and and the divine image that he placed within them and be a part of drawing that to the surface of their lives. And then finally, the outward practice of reconciliation when we actually do this with one another, it was so alive in the early church. I mean, if you read Roman history documenting the life of the church in the first century, you will be blown away by what an important part of their gathering and worship together, naming reconciliation and forgiveness was. By the third century, though, the church was more institutionalized and the practice of reconciliation was given to the bishops. Then in the year 1215, the first confessional booths were installed and churches started practicing confession in secret to a priest. Just over a thousand years after Jesus, then reconciliation was co-opted by religious professionals and was turned into a predictable system. And today, Catholic or Protestant, we've mostly dismissed the concept entirely, leaving one community to start again in another before we inevitably grind up against one another again. So here's what I'm trying to do today, friends. I'm trying to put reconciliation back into the hands of the church church. Because if we want to see this in our city, it's got to start within our walls. And if we want to see it in our church, it's got to start within you and me. So we're going to close today with communion, a meal of bread and wine, or in our case, juice, for the remembrance of Jesus. Jesus, who showed us the humility of reconciliation by the breaking of his body and the shedding of his own blood. Jesus, who showed us the life of reconciliation by his resurrection, a restored friendship with God that is freely shared with anyone who would call him Lord. And Jesus himself, he offered these instructions for the way that we should receive his forgiveness. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. So I'd love just to invite uh, the musicians to come and the communion servers. Go ahead and come up now, please. And as we do this, I just want to invite you, family, just to search your heart. To ask, is there someone that I need to be reconciled with? Some of us will likely need to go find someone else in this room before we can come to this table to say, I'm sorry, or this hurt, and I love you, before we can receive the forgiveness of God. Others of us might need to step out and make a phone call. A lot of us probably need to begin that inner work of reconciliation by praying a prayer that we've kind of kept tucked into a dark corner of our inner world so that we can begin to cultivate a way of seeing one another through the eyes of God and not through the eyes of offense. As I've been teaching today, it's just really difficult for me to imagine that there's not some situation or some relationship that has popped into your imagination. Well, Bridgetown Church, there's your opportunity for a taste of heaven. Will it be uncomfortable? Absolutely. But that's only because you've gotten acclimated to a world of division. And so reconciliation is going to feel like getting our sea legs 
It's only because we've gotten used to living in the atmosphere of this fallen world. And so when heaven invades, it takes a second to catch our breath.